So good evening. We actually have um, a slight, slight variation on our usual format. <clears throat> the dynamic duo this evening, or the Dharma duo. Um, we actually just thought because it's a little loud, Quilly's kind of echoey. Um, there's an uneven number of talks, and just so we both get to share with you final thoughts that we're going to sort of go half-half tonight, so a little bit of both of us. So I'm going to start this evening and then turn over to Richard. So it's very common, still sounds a little loud to me, very common at this point of the retreat, and maybe you've actually been doing it for a few days, you know, we just get going and we start doing this, assessing how the retreat has been. You know, what did you get out of it? What, what was it? Was it worth it? All that work and effort and aches and pains and, you know, what will I tell the people when I get home? And, you know, just this kind of sense of packaging it all up so we, we can evaluate it in some way. And I really want to let you know that you are not the best judge at the moment of how this retreat was for you. <laughs> because... Most of you, if not all of you, are probably experience this phenomena, probably experiencing this phenomena we call yogi mind. And yogi mind happens when we come to a retreat like this and we take away all of our usual distractions and busyness and the things that we usually do. There's not kind of the reality checks that we usually have. And we can fall into what we call distorted perceptions about things. I ha- there was an example I saw of this a while ago, actually not on retreat, but it's just this is the kind of thing that happens. Um, my husband and I both play tennis and like to watch tennis. It's one of the few things I actually find to watch on television. And a couple of years ago, a few years ago now, we were watching the U.S. Open, the big tennis tournament, and uh, Johnny McEnroe was commenting. If you remember him, he was a player from, what, 70s or something? Very hot-tempered, you know, he's a big personality, but he's a great tennis commentator because he's really perceptive about what's going on for people on the court. But usually in this commenting situation, they have at least two people, maybe three, and they have what's called the play-by-play person who just kind of keeps things going and what's happening, sort of very down-to-earth, and then the color commentator, and that's what Johnny Mac is. You know, they tell the stories and the insights and kind of add the flavor to it. Well, for some reason this day, the play-by-play person didn't show up. So there was just Johnny Mac in the booth, and as this match went on, I can't remember who it was, he just got wilder and wilder because there was no one kind of reining him in. And he was telling stories and cracking jokes and making fun and, you know, everything that happened he made into a big drama. So that's, you know, just doing that without the reality checks. You've been commenting on your retreat for six days now without anyone apart from a few minutes with us to say, hey, wait on a minute, you know, I don't know if that's exactly what's happening here. And so this, this thing called yogi mind can really get exaggerated on retreat. Um, we, you know, where we obsess about things and things that are actually fairly small can seem really large. We often talk about the window wars. You know, someone walks into a room, puts the window down, the next person walks in, puts the window up, the next one puts, you know, it's just like really wanting things to be a certain way. Um, the most extreme um, 
thing I've heard about this actually, I think it was in Burma, where two Western monks actually got into blows about whether the fan should be on or not. They got so irate, on, off, on, off, and they actually hit each other, which is pretty... <laughs> but the funniest one that I've heard of, um, it was a retreat, a somewhat long retreat, and a yogi um, wrote a note to the managers and said, you know, I'm doing a lot of walking meditation. I notice there's always planes flying overhead and they're actually quite loud. <laughs> Could you call the airport and get them to redirect the flights around the retreat center? So this is yogi mind. And it's another reason why we encourage you not to make big decisions while you're on a retreat. Starting this, ending that, whatever it is, going here, going there, or even in the coming days. Take a little while to let this kind of percolate through. Um, Because, as I said, you really aren't the best judge of what's happened because you're so in it. And often we don't actually know what's happened in a retreat until sometime after, as things start to kind of settle out and we see that we're relating to things in a slightly different way. And, you know, perhaps in this assessment, you're kind of remembering your expectations of this retreat. You came and you thought, well, a body and I'll heal or I'll get concentrated or bliss or, you know, sit in the... We have these ideas of sort of sitting, floating a little bit above the zafu on the, in the meditation <laughs> hall. Didn't notice it happening to any... Did it happen to anyone like that? No, probably not. But if we're willing to learn from what has happened, everything can become our teacher. All of the difficulties, the challenges, the stress that you found. And often I actually find for most people, they learn the most not from something that happened in the meditation hall, but from their work meditation and getting stressed about that, or accommodating their roommate, or being out in nature, and it's actually out there somewhere that the shifts start to happen. So again, just to loosen up your agenda or expectations about what this retreat could have or should have been. Because the work of meditation is to align more closely to the truth of things. This is what we're doing in all these different practices, all these different teachings. It's just helping us move a little closer to direct connection, to truth, to reality, to Dhamma, to to the truth, to the actual experience. And out of that, as, as the mindfulness gets developed and more clarity of mind, it allows this choice point that we've talked about, where there's a sense of presence, There's a sense of possibility of what's in front of us, the choices, and a wiser response could happen. There's this great story of someone going to visit a Zen master. They're always anonymous, these Zen masters, but I think it's a true story. And this person was kind of a little skeptical, a little cynical. So he sits down with this Zen master and sort of says, so tell me, you know, a lifetime of practice, what's the benefit? What's been the benefit for you of this lifetime of intensive practice? And the Zen master said, a wise response. (laughs) And that seems a little wimpy, doesn't it? But it's actually, if you think about it, really powerful that our practice can help us respond wisely to whatever's in front of us. Whatever it is, this is actually what we, we practice for. So it's situational. 
know, we're in touch with what's happening and we respond wisely and appropriately to that. The other day I was hiking in the hills. I hiked pretty much every day up and down these hills for exercise and I met our neighbor who runs the cattle ranch next door. So he knows I'm connected with Spirit Rock and we were chatting about the land over here and he said, oh yeah, a little while ago uh, the, the fence got broken up there on top of the land and so the cows got out. He said, so me and my son, we came over to Spirit Rock land, we're looking for the cows and we saw some people and we said, have you seen any cows? <laughs> and he said, these people looked at us blankly and wouldn't say anything. <laughs> and he's like, what's up with that? And he said, after a while, we kind of got it, all right, then maybe they'll retreat, they don't speak. You know, he doesn't know anything really about what we do here. But I was kind of, I don't know, a little embarrassed. It's like, that's not an appropriate response. If someone asks you, have you seen a cow? You say yes or no or whatever the, you know. They took their, you know, precept of noble silence too seriously. That's not an appropriate response. So... Someone asks you, have you seen a cow? You have permission, yes or no. And another thing, you know, I've been talking about is how this practice deconstructs experience. That when we take things to be solid, this body, our experience, our sense of self, it's really unworkable. And all of these practices are different ways in to actually loosening that sense of solidity. So the classic one is this 32 parts of the body. Just seeing, you know, we take it to be such a thing, this body, and we identify with it and it's, you know, it's, it's felt sense. But it's actually, as you've seen, all of these constituent, moving, alive, changing parts. I mean, Bob's been giving us all these statistics that every, I can't remember them, you know, every few years, a whole new skeleton, and every day, you know, shedding pounds of skin. We're always sweeping up after you as you're shedding all your skin behind you. It's all changing. The four elements that Bob taught this morning of earth, air, fire, and water, another way of just seeing, oh, it's just elemental. That's its nature. We make such a big deal of this body and its experiences, but it's just elemental. Another schema we talk about are the five aggregates, form, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. It's a very detailed map, again, of looking at where do we identify, where do we get caught. All of them pointing to the same insights that this whole process, everything we experience is impermanent, that there's nothing solid or fixed at the center of it, and that if it's unreliable because of its changing nature, because of its very conditioned nature. And so one of the aggregates actually is perception, is this recognizing or naming things. That's how we define perception in Buddhism. And this is a really important functioning of mind because we're always perceiving things and naming them. Even if we're so used to it, you know, we don't think we're doing it, but just as I look out, you know, floor and zafu and bench and man and woman and sweater or whatever, we've learnt that. You know, if, if someone off the street walked in and you showed them this, they'd say, well, that's a planter, that's what that is. You know, you'd put a tree in that or something. It's sort of unusual, you know, it's not out a Western concept of a bell, but we know it as a bell. And not only that, what do we feel about that sound? Huh? 
pleasant, huh? And if you're having a you know difficult meditation, if you're having a good one, it's unpleasant. But it's the perception that's that's picking that out, and we don't realize that we're all the time filtering what we pay attention to, and then how we're relating this, relate, relating to it through this functioning of perception. Perception itself is conditioned. It's the same as these other aggregates. The same uh, things apply, and so. Through our perceptions, our world gets shaped, but it's often distorted. It's distorted because it's conditioned from our upbringing and the things we've learned. The Talmud, that book of Jewish wisdom, says something like, we don't see things as they are, we see things as we are. Meaning we see the world through our perceptions, through our conditioning. So we're filtering all the time. And there's a classic set of teachings of this distor- about the distortions of the perceptions called the vipalasas. It's a, another Buddhist list. You're probably getting the sense the Buddha really liked lists. And in this list, it talks about what we constantly do. We take what's impermanent to be permanent. So we've been saying, look at the body. It's changing. Don't see it as lasting or permanent. But everything, emotions are impermanent. Experiences are impermanent. Other people are impermanent. But we, we, we don't want to see that. We, we, we want to assume that it's steady, that things will be reliable and there for us. And they're not, but that's a distortion. What's inherently unsatisfactory or dukkha to be satisfying. And so we're always looking out there for something that's going to do it for us. Some object, some person, some experience just to reflect how many desires have you satisfied in your life and where is that satisfaction now? If you really look at what's going on, it's actually what you're looking for is not the object. It's to have that momentary quenching of desire, that moment of peace. But because we haven't seen to the root of that, the force of desire just rises up again and it lands on something else. It lands on the next thing. And we're constantly going through this. This is what's happening all the time. The third one is that we take what's not a self to constitute a self, anatta. That there's not a solid, permanent, unchanging entity at the center of all this. I talked about the Wizard of Oz kind of uh, you know, experience. We, you know, it sounds silly when I say it like that, but it's sort of what we do. We think there's something in there running the show. We think, I am my body, or I'm in my body, or I own my body. So here we've spent six days looking at this body in great detail. $64,000 to anyone who found the self in there. Did you find it? Anyone? Something solid, unchanging, lasting, that you can hang on and say, this, this is me. And then the last one is um, seeing the unlovely as lovely. This is the word asuba. We've talked about that these practices are called asuba practices because usually we're entranced with the outer form. We cover this sort of squishy mess up with some skin and put some shape to it, and then we put some clothes on it, and ah, looking good. But it's actually, as the Buddha said, its nature has, and don't you love that, 
There's that one list, bus, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat. You know, what are you in love with? That's all part of this experience of the body. And so the 32 practices is a traditional practice to balance that tendency to sort of put this glorification on the outer aspects of experience. There's also the opposite. There's supasanya, and that's also a traditional practice, is seeing what's lovely in the unlovely. So both are valid practices. And so how many of you now have warm feelings towards your spleen or bile? You know, you'd never thought of it before. It's like, oh yeah, you know, I need that too. Whatever it is, I still haven't quite figured it out, but you know, you feel kind of warm towards it, right? So this is subhasanya. This is starting to see something lovely and something you'd either think of as unlovely or basically don't really think about. So this is working with perception, clarifying perception, to see these distortions and see how they actually lead to suffering. Another main way that many of us have a distorted perception is our view of ourselves. And I know I've just been saying, you know, there's nothing solid there, but there's definitely a sense of self. And no one is going to deny that, that we have a sense of ourselves. And, you know, we have memories and conditioning and responses and habits. But many of us take that sense of self, we can solidify it, but even if we don't, but we can view it as unworthy, as not good enough. And this is such a... um, a prevalent view that people can have. It's almost like an epidemic of unworthiness in our Western culture. It's really sad. It's, it's all, it's, you know, in the role that I'm in, I, I'm in and talking to so many people, I see it as one of the greatest forms of suffering. All of the others come in and out, you know, the situational ones of our life, but we carry through with that sense of unworthiness. And even though the truth is other than that, I mean, we're all, especially here, basically good people. We're kind and we want to be more compassionate. We're here because we want to grow. And other people can tell us that and and really, you know, reflect back to us their appreciation of us. And we can't let it in because of this sense of unworthiness. And it can really deepen into a sense of shame or even self-hatred really very sad and a lot of suffering. And so out of that, we're constantly evaluating how we're doing, but it's distorted. We don't see clearly. We're seeing through this filter that only allows in what's difficult or what's wrong and what's good or wholesome. We're like, oh yeah, anyone would do that. Or, you know, that just happens. Not, you know, not not really a big deal or whatever. We don't let it in. This is distorted perception. So we compare ourselves to how we should be, these ideals we have, or to other people, or to how we were in the past, or how we should be in the future. We project judgment of other people onto us. So there's this constant cycling out of the sense of shame or unworthiness, and it just reinforces this sense of self as unworthy. And in meditation, we can start to look at that and see how We've actually internalized the message that many of us received as we grew up from our family, from our peers, from society, of some sense of inadequacy, you know, this evaluation of not 
good enough. You know, whether it's about our looks or our body type or our hair or our, our possessions or our clothes or our success, our fame, our, our um, abilities in life. And so this sense can be just woven through our experience of ourselves. And so meditation can really begin to correct this distorted perception. As we get closer to really getting in touch with who we are, and again, not solidifying that, but seeing that we're this process that has this aliveness to it and has this universal nature to it, there's this possibility of really undoing those messages. Because you see, that's all they are. They're conditioned. They're impermanent. There's nothing solid there in those messages, as solid as we've taken them to be. This is a huge part of the work of our meditation, is actually undoing that belief of unworthiness. And it's so amazing how many people, even really successful people, suffer from this or are driven by this sense of unworthiness, Probably most of you know of Woody Allen, this famous American um, filmmaker, actor. I mean, he's had all the accolades you could want, fame and wealth and recognition, success. And he's had years of therapy. I mean, he jokes about it, but he's still completely neurotic. I mean, it's why he's funny, his sort of quirky, neurotic uh, take on life. You know, some of the things he says, his thing, he's really fearful of dying, And he says things like, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve immortality through not dying. (laughs) And I like this one, I am at two with nature. Instead of I'm at one with nature, it's divided. (laughs) I was thrown out of college for cheating on the metaphysics exam. I looked into the soul of another boy. (laughs) But I just got those quotes out. I mean, you can find so many of them. Um, because I watched a documentary where he actually said this. He said, there was nothing in my life that I aspired towards that hasn't come through for me. But despite all these lucky breaks, why do I still feel that I got screwed somehow? So just that sense of never enough, because he hasn't really been able to access that sense of contentment, that you know, to really see the source of the desire and the the longing. And so most of us are somewhere in that realm of, of this sense of inadequacy or shame. And out of this distorted perceptions, re, re-solidifying or revalidating that over and over again. And we do, we're, so these judgments are constantly f- running through our minds and they're shaping us, shaping how we view the world. Always, you know, tick, 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 tick. They're so familiar we don't recognize them often until we sit down to meditate. And it can be quite certainly humbling, but even horrifying to feel how we speak to ourselves and to start to look at that, those messages that are going on endlessly in the mind. And, you know, we start to see them not aware. We think they're observations. This is how things are. I am like, you know, as you get a bit mindful, yeah, that's right, I am like that. It's not true, you know, and we really need to, to start to see those thoughts for what they are. They're also conditioned, impermanent, not not self. There's not a real validity to them. 
the Dalai Lama actually says something like, the purpose of a human life is to be happy. One of my teachers, great inspirations, Venerable Analeo, very deep scholar of Buddhist teachings and practices, says the whole of the Buddhist path could be seen as a progressive refinement of joy. This is actually more true or more real or the direction this path is going than all of these judgments and and sense of limitation. And so this practice is about clarifying our perceptions so they are more true to what's actually beneficial for us, what's actually onward leading on this path of practice, going in that direction of more joy, more contentment, more freedom. And to really, you know, see that this practice is about accepting. Yes, accepting where we are, but not being limited or defined by that. That there's this possibility for deep peace and deep happiness out of this sense of kindness or compassion. It begins, though, by being willing to feel the suffering. The suffering of the judgment, the suffering of a closed heart, the suffering of the sense of separation. This is the first noble truth. There is suffering. But the shift of perception about that is by turning towards the suffering, by actually opening to and being willing to feel the longing or the grief or the shame or the guilt or whatever is there, we actually begin the work of transformation. That these steps on the path of finding greater freedom, finding greater joy, comes out of our willingness to actually turn to what's difficult and and work with it, bring our mindfulness, this kind attention to that very process itself. And so when we find a path in that suffering, that's when it becomes noble. Like it's called the first noble truth. Why is suffering noble? It's noble when we find a path in it, when suffering becomes our teacher. So it's this counterintuitive or paradoxical teaching. We actually open to the suffering, feel it, feel the wounds that are there, so that we learn how to actually be more free, happy, content, alive. This is the direction this path goes. Being with the lungs, the liver, the spleen, the bile, that's just a doorway. That's just a way in to what's true, what's real, and to start to honor the life of this body and the possibility of happiness for us. Because this meditation isn't about what we do on the cushion. As I keep saying, it's not about feeling your liver. It's actually how do we live our lives? How do we bring the sense of joy and happiness and, and deep well-being back into our lives, into our relationships, our families, our communities, and into the world? So I want to finish with a poem by Derek Walcott. He's a poet who was born in St. Lucia in the Caribbean, and it's called Love After Love. The time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on life. This sense of 
reunion, union with the beloved, which is here in, in our own hearts, our own minds, our own bodies. So thank you, and I turn to Richard. Do you- Uh, how's the how's the sound? Okay, yeah, good. Okay, thank you. So um, I just want to actually follow on what Sally was talking about, uh, and just add another side to it. And in particular, the piece she was talking about how we have these misperceptions, these stories that we I was saying the other night that we create and we live out of them as if they're really real, uh, in which sen- uh, a negative sense of self. Right, and she was naming unworthiness, or we could, you know, all the things she just talked about, and that's part of it. But another um, problem that happens when we get identified or uh, caught in these negative stories about ourselves is, is that not only are those stories we don't see that they're just made up, but are uh, conditioned, but also we. Uh, forget the other half of the story, which is everything that's good and right and beautiful in us. And we just lose it completely and, and, and don't see that, right? And for all of us, you know, we're all a mix of the wholesome and the unwholesome, right? And it's not only, you know, and, and you can just look into your own actions, you know, you're, going, you're here on retreat and you have these great intentions and you filled with kindness or love or whatever it is. And then other times, maybe your mind is, yeah, it's not so beautiful, right? Or uh, in different ways. And when you go home, um, you know, what, what's going to happen is, is you'll come back and go into whatever your life circumstances are and you'll, you know, you'll act in wise and skillful, wholesome ways there. And then, you know, what's also going to happen? You're going to fall flat on your face a thousand times. And uh, we have to have some uh, perspective about that, knowing that we're doing the best we can. It's, and this is the process that we're engaged in, is moving in a wholesome direction, but to know that, you know, we've all got these, we call them conditioned patterns. How you got yours, how I got mine. Sometimes we know, sometimes we don't, but here we are, and we do the best we can with it. And so I, first I want to just invite you to take a few moments and um, reflect, well, I'll come back to that in just a moment. Uh, it's important to, we want to know the parts in ourselves that could use some work. The places where we create suffering, right? And we'll call it the unwholesome, the negativity. Uh, we want to, you know, and, and it seems sometimes like, sometimes people will complain, oh, Buddhism, all you do is, it's like the all-suffering all the time channel or something, and, and all you talk about is suffering, suffering. Well, we do want to come to understand our suffering and our causes and the way to let it go. So, yes, we, we want to be familiar with that. But we also need to be familiar with everything that's right. 
We want to be just as deeply immersed in it. We need to have re- we need to have familiarity with it, and like a muscle memory, because sometimes we need that to support us, right? And we, so we have to have touched in with it, and also spent time um, feeling it and and uh, exploring it and coming to know it. So it's readily accessible for us too. It's not foreign. They're both sides because they're all aspects of ourselves. They're all just, just different you know, forces. So I invite you just for a few moments, uh, I'll probably keep speaking while you do this, but reflect in yourself to, you know, yes, we know you've got, especially those who are particularly hard on yourselves. Uh, yeah, we know those parts are there. Don't worry, you can come back to them whenever you want. Uh, but uh, take a few moments to just feel if, if you can touch into anything, or maybe a lot of things, or even just one thing that's, that's good, that's right. I, I like the word beautiful, I don't, it personally, but you know, what, whatever, you know, that's you know, an overlay we put on it, but sometimes it can be useful, uh, you know, that just feels good and right. Um, some, for some people it's hard to find something. I've, had, I've done this kind of exercise with people from time to time and once in a while someone will come and say, I can't find one good thing about myself, you know? And um, so maybe, you know, we, maybe that's true for some, pe- some of you here, right? Um, you know, um, so perhaps for, for you, if, if you're one of those people, let me offer uh, a little uh, suggestion or help. Um, is it true, I already know the answer, but um, is it true that among all the things that are really deeply important to you, deeply important, is um, deepening in kindness Compassion. Yeah? Is it true, isn't it true, that what's important to you is to uh, live in a way that's wise and skillful and less reactive and more wisely responsive with some clarity and self-awareness to live in a way that creates less suffering for yourself and for others, and creates more well-being for yourself and for others. Is that true? I don't think you would have come here. You definitely wouldn't have stayed here. You know, your friend may have gotten you to come, and you look at the poster and it said, you know, come, sit, retreat, get inner peace, and then when you found out what actually happens when you sit with yourself, uh, you'd go running from the hills. Well, we do get inner peace some, too. I'm trying to be a little... Okay, it wasn't that funny, but... uh, um, (laughs) You know, you stayed. Yeah. So you have to fill in your own adjectives. But I'm thinking for each of us, some version, whatever your words are, of these wholesome, I think beautiful Dharma qualities are deeply, profoundly important for you. And you want to move your life in a direction that those grow and that you're not a, a, you know, that you are a light in the world for yourself and for others, yeah? Regardless of how well or poorly, good or bad, you think you're showing up, that's just conditioned patterns. That's what we're working on. 
But regardless of your judgment on that, that intention that you have or aspiration, that is a deep place of profound goodness in you. Right there. Just your intention. Even if you're screwing it up and and it doesn't come out that well, you know, that intention is real. So feeling for yourself, you know, I don't want to, you know, you have to see if, if that's true or not. But I think for most, I hope all of us, it's true. Feel the goodness of that. What can happen is our, our uh, critical minds, and for some, you know, we all have what I call the, our top ten tunes, you know, which are basically the, the, our main patterns that, uh, you know, create uh, difficulties and suffering. And, you know, there's a lot of commonality, but we'll all have more emphasis on one than another. Well, we all know what it's like to have a critical mind. For some of us, that's more of a major pattern than for others. Well, and, but we can get identified, we believe it. But, you know, the critical mind, um, we shouldn't trust that. Um, it only knows how to want, do one thing, right? It's like, uh, it's, right? It's not going to tell you how wonderful you are because that's not what the critical mind does, right? It's like when you're on your computer and you've got the icon and you click on, um, you know, uh, for an Excel spreadsheet, you're never going to get Microsoft Word to open up. Because when you click on Excel, it does one thing. It runs Excel. When whatever it is that triggers off, it's like that little program runs, and it doesn't care it'll land on you, it'll land on someone else. The poor thing, like next time it, you know, it pops up, you know, I don't know, pat it on the head, thank it for sharing, and then, you know, but we don't have to believe it. And that's a big part of where the the mindfulness, the awareness comes in, so we don't automatically f- just believe believe it, right? We can see that it's a pattern there. And of course, then, hopefully, over time, we can start to loosen, uh, untangle the knots of that pattern some, too, yeah? So, um, um, staying in touch with our wholesome, our good, our beautiful, our highest intentions is very, very important, and I want to just spend the last few minutes of my time talking about that. Why is it so important? For a number of reasons. One in particular is, when the energy or the forces uh, that are, are moving us in alignment with what we want our life to actually be about, it's easy. We're in har- we're harmonized. What about the times when everything's pulling you in a different direction? That's what it's really feeling like. So I'll give you an example. I have an aspiration. A few people here who know me know this, that I take, it, this is a real aspiration of mine, to live in a way in which my heart never closes off to any living being. And that's a real aspiration that I have, and I reflect on it often. And so, you know, I come in here, and I can do all this, you know, compassion and love for all beings. But of course, then I go out and I encounter actual beings. (laughs) And... uh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and I get to see, ah, more work to be done. (laughs) And I really want, I try to hold that with that attitude, right? Because when whatever happens, 
And, you know, that's a great aspiration, but what about when I don't feel like it? The energy of it. I didn't even choose it to come. It came and chose me. It doesn't want to be loving. It wants, it wants to, whatever, let that person have it or whatever it wants to do, the feeling. And then what do I do if I just go with the, just the, and these are just come up also during causes and conditions. Do I want my highest aspirations to be at the whim of just the way the winds of life happen to blow? No. Right? So, I remember my aspiration and it's like I've driven a stake really, really firm into the ground and I hold on to that. That's my touchstone. And then I can say, all right. Oh, do I have to? No, 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 no. It's my, I don't, but I don't want to. No, no. And I can steer myself back to the living spirit of the aspiration or the intention. Let it support me in the times when I need it. And so for, that's, you know, in whatever, um, whatever, you know, situations, I'll give you another example. I used to uh, live in Santa Cruz for many years and I used to be an engineer in Silicon Valley. I would commute, uh, uh, work for the big semiconductor companies and for years I would drive from Santa Cruz over the Santa Cruz mountains down, I'd do my commute. And it um, won't mean anything for you who don't know it, but it's this infamous mountain road that you go through and it's treacherous and people in the morning were all high-powered Silicon Valley types heading off to work and it can be aggressive on that road. And I remember once I'm driving on the road and um, this, this guy zooms up behind me in, I don't know, some sports car Porsche or something, so there's my judging mind's already going off. <laughs> he's, right, he's right on my tail. I'm in the right-hand lane, he could go around, but I mean, I don't, you know, I actually don't know what his story was. Who knows what was going on, you know, you, right? He's on my tail, he kind of sits there giving me attitude, and then he zooms, zooms up next to me, looks over, giving me more attitude, and then whips around, cuts me off, and takes off, and that's the last I ever saw of him. Here's what happened in my mind. this point, so I've been meditating now, I was probably, so I've been meditating about 44 years, so I've been a Dharma practitioner about 20 years at the time. I've been putting a lot into it too. A lot of retreats, good daily practice, sincere aspirations, had the same aspiration. So I used to, sometimes I would chant the Metta Sutta, oh boy, uh, going over the hill. Here's what happened in my, you know, the Metta Sutta. May all beings, you know, be free of, you know, regardless. And so the guy pulls up next to me, and in my mind, it, this is what happened. It goes, may all beings, may they near or far, may they, asshole. <laughs> and he takes off, and then I'm right back, whether seen or unseen. <laughs> I missed it. And then a few you know, seconds further down through the chant, I made this beautiful chant. I woke up, wait a minute. What just happened? You know? And then I took some time, but you know, that's all right. Because I don't need to judge it by how well or poorly it manifested. That just was it just happened. 
It's how are we going to deal with what arises in our mind due to these impersonal causes and conditions. We can get involved in the process, yeah? That's where staying in touch with our intentions can really support us. So you have to find for yourself, you know, the times when, you know, what is your deepest intention? What are your highest aspirations? I hope you have to make your own choices, but I hope deepening in Dharma qualities in your life, you know, that's my own agenda maybe for you, but it would be important. So then um, what I did, just to give you an example, is I stopped and I thought, and, and there was a lot you can do there. There's so many things. I started to reflect, you know, instead of my reactivity, it's like, you know, instead of looking at the action, I can reflect, well, what might be going on in someone to have them act that way, you know? And so, oh yeah, well, who knows? Maybe he's stressed out or, you know, I don't know. And he can start to shift. Yeah. And how does it really feel? Let me get in touch with a place that, to be honest, he kind of has a judgment about him and thinks he, thinks he wasn't kind of an asshole and all that kind of stuff, right? It's like, oh, that's the feeling, yeah. And my judgment spinning out. And the part even that maybe doesn't want to let go of that. Because it feels like he's a, and I'm a, and I've got it all concretized, right? And what happens if I kind of shift and go back into a heart that, that, that's not closed off? It doesn't mean I have to be in this warm, mushy love with him, but I certainly don't have to be shut off. Yeah. So that's an example of how staying in touch with our intention can help us. And there's so many other ways um, that that can happen. I'll just give you one more. I uh, grew up watching, my father um, was an infantryman in World War II. He landed on the, Norm, excuse me, on the Normandy beaches a, a, about a week after D-Day, fought in the Ardennes, he was in the Battle of the Bulge. I mean, he was just, he had people, you know, killed right next to him. He was full blast in it. It defined his whole life. So I grew up watching World War II movies and cowboy movies with my dad. So guess what got programmed in my mind? And to this day, I really don't watch much TV, but if I happen to see if it's a World War II movie or a cowboy movie, the pull is there. It got conditioned in me, I know that. So I hardly watch any TV, but you know, once in a while, you know, it's late at night, I'm tired, I'm not quite ready for bed, I'm a little too tired to meditate, the rest of my family's gone to bed, and you know, don't want to read, so I'll just flip on the TV and oh, it's a World War II movie. <laughs> and I'll say, oh, I'm not going to get any sleep. I'm not going to get to bed. When is it over? Oh, it doesn't end until 2 o'clock. Well, that blows the mind. Because, and so we have to be respectful, this is my point, of the forces that pull us. And then I'll try everything, say, okay, it's not really happening. There's a director. He's yelling, action, cut. Nobody's getting blown up. It's you know, try everything. Okay, it doesn't work. Richard, if you don't go to sleep, you're going to be too tired to get up and meditate. You're going to be tired all day. And then what do I do? I feel my intention. What's more deep importance to me than watching the World War II movie? The pull is there. It is a real pull. Um, cowboy movies, too, I have to tell you. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, I really love them. <laughs> You know, did you see, what was the one, was it three, 310 to Yuma or 610 to Yuma? Any of you see that one? Oh man, that's a good movie. They, 
violent though, but that's good. So, you know, the pull's there, but what's my deeper intention? And then it's like, and let that support me. So there's so many opportunities where it's important to stay in touch with our intention and not to fall into judging yourself just by how you judge how well you're pulling off or manifesting in your life. Yeah, we want to have wise discernment about that too. So if, just a few more things, if you're, uh, but look, um, the Buddha had this, he talks about conceit, and I love this. If you think you're better than someone, that's considered conceit. If you think you're less than someone, that's conceit too. And if you think you're equal to someone, isn't that interesting? It's getting back to what Sally was talking about, of this sense of, it's, he's trying to have a step out of the, this self-referential paradigm of, of how am I doing? How am I doing in relation to, you know, am I okay? How am I going to be okay? How am I going to get okay? You know, they're better than this. I'm not as, and just a step out of that. That's the purpose of reflecting in that way. And so in a way, I think he's asking us not not to fall into those kind of diluted way of judging ourselves. But if you are, since so many of us are going to judge ourselves anyway, I would like to say that your good, wholesome intention is a much more uh, reliable and accurate yardstick to judge yourself by. So... uh, using that to stay connected with, and especially as you go back into your life. You know, it may be worth it for you to reflect on aspirations and intentions, you know, uh, really on a daily basis or, you know, and see how, if that's supportive of you. So what I'd like to do to end, and this will take maybe three minutes, something like that, is actually do a little guided reflection on getting in touch with your deepest and highest intentions and aspirations. So please get comfortable in as comfortable as your body will allow. And um, what I'm going to do is there's four questions that I'm going to pose. And I'm going to say each of them in two or three different ways because sometimes, you know, your language (coughs) it one way or another lands better. And then because of time, you know, I think these deserve a lot of time, maybe a lifetime of inquiry, but... I'll give them maybe 30 seconds each. Just to, <laughs> but I think it can, and you know, you may, it, it may evoke something or it may not. So just let it stay, yeah. Okay, so take a few breaths or whatever it helps you connect in with your body, settle in. And here's the first reflection. What is your life about or what do you want your life to be about in the deepest or highest sense? Or you could, you could put it, um, what is your highest, the highest aspirations for your life? What do you really want your life to be about? What's of utmost importance to you? I was having in mind Dharma qualities, but you know, it's for you to fill in what you really want your life to be about in the deepest or highest sense.
okay, that was the first question. And that's a lot, right? That's a big reflection. Again, you know, you can take these with you and maybe you already know or, or spend time. What do you really want your life to be about? Okay, second reflection. So let that one go out of your mind. Second reflection. When you look at how you're actually living, in what ways or to, to what degree are there some disconnects or gaps between your <coughs> highest aspirations and intentions and the actuality of your life? In what ways or to what, whatever degrees do you live in ways that are not fully in alignment with your deepest or highest aspirations for how you would like to be? What are the pl places in you, the, the situations, the aspects of yourself in which there's a gap or a disconnect? then you can let that one go out of your mind. The third reflection, in whatever ways or to whatever extent there are some gaps or disconnects, and of course there are for all of us, what, what causes the gap? What are the things or situations, the forces that pull you? What, why is it that you, uh, that it keeps you why are, are you not as in alignment or living more fully out of that place of your highest or deepest aspirations? What causes it? What are the forces? Could be inner, outer. You might not know. Just hang out with it. Again, I realize these are short, but I hope it will plant the seeds. And then the last reflection. What would support you to close up the gap? What would support you to live more authentically, more of the time, from the place of your, your most wholesome, your deepest, highest intentions or aspirations? What could be of support? So I hope that's been useful to reflect on intention, keep it alive in you, and then see for yourself how that might, um, you know, 
especially when, you know, when the, when the challenging forces really are up strong, pulling you in a different way, if you can really use that as a support. Yeah. So um, I want to thank you for your kind attention. Um, I hope that's been useful. Um, Is it just me or is the stillness palpable in the, in the hall? I don't know. So we're going to now shift and um, uh, we're going into the walking period. We went a little over, it's 8.35 now, so there's 25 minutes. And then for those of you who are going to join us, we'll have the normal 9, 9 p.m. set. So please enjoy the uh, walking period. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.